everybody. Welcome to the Timberland College Podcast. I am your host, Mackenzie Matthews. Uh, thank you so much for listening. Today on the podcast, we have the absolute goat. We have the goat, you guys. Dick Foth, um, Dr. Dick Foth, he's a pastor, he's an author, he's on our teaching team at Timberline, um, he's the adopted grandpa that everybody wants, <laughs> seriously, um, and he joins me in this conversation where we talk about our culture right now. We talk about um, the angst, the division, and what it looks like to be peacemakers. We talk about this from the political perspective, a lot of it through the political perspective, and we get to hear his story and his heart um, for us as we lead ourselves into peace with God and the simple things that we can do to be peacemakers in this season. You really should get a pen and paper for this because he has some straight fire in this conversation, his perspective. Um, it's just refreshing. And I hope that it blesses you today like it blessed me. So enjoy my conversation with my friend, Dick Foth. Well, Foth? Yes, ma'am. <laughs> Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on the Timberland College podcast. My joy. Okay, for anyone who doesn't know you, which I feel like people got to know yet, but for anyone that doesn't know you, could you give a little snapshot of you? A little snapshot of you. <laughs> what's your life? What's your life like these days? My life these days is like your life. It's we're walking around masked. We are trying to find places of connection and meaning and something other than drive-through and all of those things. But if you want a little of my history, yeah. um, I was born three months after Pearl Harbor, which means I was born in March, St. Patrick's Day, actually, March 17, mm. 1942, which means that I am approaching 78 and a half years old, or the way mm. I like to say it, I'm on my 79th trip around the sun. Yes. So, and uh, Ruth and I have been married 47 years. We have 12 kids, not 12 kids, we have four kids. 12 grandkids, uh, and uh, two grandkids and one on the way. Uh, so very old. <laughs> very I saw a picture old. of myself yesterday <laughs> swimming at Corona Del Mar in Southern California. I'm getting out. I am slim. I have broader shoulders than I do stomach, and I had <laughs> dark brown hair and a mustache. And I said, who is that masked man, unmasked man? You know, so anyway. Oh, gosh. Man, so 78. Yep. And a half. Yep. I think it's safe to say then. I mean, I'm 32. Younger. I'm yes. 32 and a half. Yes. And the majority of people listening to this, while some might be 70 and a half, likely are younger than both of us. Yes. College age folks listening to the Termaline College podcast. But you've seen more seasons. You have more perspective than I do. And we both have more perspective maybe than somebody younger than us. But one of the reasons I invited you, or I wanted to talk with you, was the year that we're in, 2020, um, looking at where we've come from this year, and the rest of this year, it's felt like a heavy, tense year. We've been because interrupted. It because it has been. <laughs> <laughs> we've been interrupted, disrupted. Even this week, ash was falling from the sky, all on top of, you know, an election year, which, it's just been a lot. It's right. been a lot. And to me, it's felt like a lot of people 
feel frustrated. There's an underlying angst going on. Seems like a lot of anger. People seem really polarized. And there seems to be some real fear and real outrage. And so instead of taking a ton of time and talking about anger or issues themselves, I wanted to spend some time talking about being peacemakers. Our invitation as followers of Jesus to be peacemakers. Mm. Blessed are the peacemakers. They'll be called children of God. Do everything you can to live at peace with one another. Those are like some of our invitations as Jesus people. And knowing that you've been around the sun more than I, I wanted to hear from you about it. Your thoughts generally about making peace. But before that, can you share what you see when you look out at the culture, the social climate? For us, this is maybe all we've known or all we've seen. So this feels really heavy. Like, yeah. this, like you know, the sky is falling. I'm just curious what you see from your perspective when you're looking at our social climate. My perspective comes in part from um, looking back at my parents' and grandparents' perspective. You know, my thesis would be in order to move forward, oftentimes you need to glance back. You need, when you lose perspective is when you go nutso. When you lose perspective is, is when you just are paralyzed with fear. And when I look back at my parents' age, my mom was born in 1910, my dad in 1913. They were kids during the great flu influenza epidemic, World War One. Stock market crashes in 1929, and from 29 to 45, you have these two incredible things called the Great Depression and the Second World War. You talk about stress. I remember my dad talking about in the early 30s being at a, at a Bible college in Southern California in Pasadena, walking up the hill and finding a nickel, and he thought it was just tremendous. He said, the problem was I walked up looking at the ground then for the next year, looking for another nickel. And But it's, it's hard for us to imagine what kind of challenge that time was economically. So you have economic challenges that are huge. You have war starting up. You have all of these things. And disease early on. And it, But in, in this moment in time, we have this layering that an affluent culture has never faced. This is, historians would say that 1968 in American history, apart from the wars, 1968 was the worst year in American history because of all the things that happened then. You had assassination of, of Martin Luther King Jr. Two months later, Bobby Kennedy. You had riots at the Democratic National Convention. You had uprisings at the Olympics, all these things going on. This this season seems like 1968 on steroids because of the layering effect. So you have a physical virus that's going on. You have an emotional virus, this great angst caused by, I mean, we had great angst before this hit, especially younger folks. You know, all the studies show that for whatever the reasons are. And on top of that, then you have catastrophic things, whether it's Hurricane Laura in the southeast of the United States or the whole West Coast is on fire as we speak. And I, I don't think that's hyperbole. It's incredible. We have kids in Oregon, friends in California. It's just this whole thing. And here in Colorado, we have that. Going. So you have the emotional 
you have the economic, you have the physical at two layers. One in a virus you can't see, and two in fires and storms you can see. So if people say, boy, I'm just a little anxious, well, I guess so. <laughs> There's good reason. <laughs> but the question is not, am I anxious now? The question is, will I get through this? And what will I look like on the other side? You know, I have a friend who was a, a missionary in Africa for years, and you'd see him. His name was Charles Greenaway, and he's an old Irish storyteller. And I'd say, Charles, how you doing? He said, I'm, I'm doing okay, Dick. I, I'm, uh, I'm going to be all right. I'm just not going to look like much when I get there, you know, because of the stuff he was going through. And I think that's the, I have the, I have the privilege at my age of looking back and seeing the things that my parents came through. And not only were they survivors, they were victors. And so I think the challenge for us is to not settle for surviving. And, and to and to settle to to uh, punch toward if if you can say it that way punch toward victory i just um i just know that in order to do that the subject you have in play here is peace and peacemaking is really critical and so how we get there is the uh, is this important conversation yeah for sure Random question that I didn't pay for. Do you think technology has made it harder? Like, if you think about your grandparents, like you're saying, your Hard, parents. harder or easier? Yeah, when both. it comes both. Both. Yeah. And the the challenge with technology is that it gives us information, unbelievable amounts of information in an instant, and that's really good, and that's really bad. Because I have enough trouble dealing with COVID and forest fires and masking and disconnection without knowing that 14 people died in Bulgaria overnight. Or that's, and that's not being hard hearted. That's Mm -hmm. just saying Mm -hmm. it's just, it's just more than our human Mm -hmm. psyche can. You know, Jesus had this very interesting statement in Matthew 6 where he says, don't give thought for tomorrow. Because tomorrow has enough evil in itself. I've often thought, I often wondered whether he was smiling when he said that. Because it wasn't a joke, but, but the, but the listeners would know that. They would know I'm only built for one day at a time. And when I have all of the information, uh, it, it sort of hammers me. I, I said to Ruth the other day, my wife, I said, uh, you know, this would have been more of a challenge without technology, without Zooming, without access to cell phones. So it's it's like many things that are good. It's like water and fire. Water gives you life and fire keeps you warm unless it's out of control. So technology is good unless it's out of control. I know I had the the thought, or I heard somebody say, I don't know where I heard it from, but they were talking about the tree in the garden. Yep. It was the tree of the knowledge, okay. the tree of knowledge. Yeah. And that was like the tempting thing. And then mm-hmm. living in the space where we have so much knowledge, yeah. like way more knowledge than we were ever supposed to have. Right. That we get paralyzed and overwhelmed by our knowledge. Oh, yeah. And when things feel angsty. Yes. 
it seems like the places where people are venting a lot of that space is, might be on that technology where it can feel just like an onslaught of high emotion, high adrenaline. It's just a lot. Well, and it, it, I think the downside of technology, in particular social media, is this, is that it, it, it gives a place to vent that's anonymous, mm-hmm. but it's not, but it's not private. When you have anonymity without privacy, what do you, how do you, what do you do with anonymity that goes public? Well, that, that's where all kinds of theories come from and all kinds of, but when it's ventings and when it's personal, mm-hmm. whether it's on the Twitter feed, whatever it is, then it, then it generates emotion and there's no way to nuance it. Mm-hmm. It's very interesting. I heard a, I heard a little conversation the other day on the radio and I asked uh, my uh, 17-year-old granddaughter about this. I said, when you get a text that has punctuation, uh, like a period at the end of something, does that feel harsh to you? She thought a moment. She said, yeah. I said, well, that's what this conversation said, that when you have these they interviewed five younger folks, and they said, "When you have periods in the, in the well, my generation and numbers of generations afterwards have been taught to write with punctuation, but when you do it in a text format and you don't use emoji or emoticon, whatever you call it, when you don't put smiley faces, whatever, I don't know the tone behind it. That's always true of a letter on, or of writing, unless you elaborate it so that I know. If you use language that." that expresses emotion but i i think it's that side of it that that increase if 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 i if i don't only have to be anxious about the sky is falling with ash or i'm going to get a bug that that i could even be carrying and i don't know it i mean you know how can it get scarier than that Um, unless my good friend sends me a text and it has a period at the end of it it freaked me out when I was listening. I said, you have got to be kidding me. Because <laughs> I was taught you're supposed to write that way. Yeah. And anyway, that's sort of going off the rails. No. But, it's, but it's all connected mm-hmm. because the, the, um, we live in a country, and I'm speaking now of the United States, generally top 5% economically of the entire world. So we are 4% of the population, 7.6 gaining on 7 billion people. And we're in the top 5%. And most younger people haven't had to face the hard things. Now, I don't mean familial things, parents divorcing or abuse or things, because there are plenty of, plenty of that going on. I'm talking about the hard cultural things. I had a, I was in a conversation last fall with three of my nephews and another younger friend from here in Washington, D.C., with a retired three-star general who had served in Vietnam. He had been uh, mentored by people who had gone through the Second World War. And one of my nephews, very articulate, said, you know, I'm 15 when the planes fly into the building in, in on 9-11. And uh, it's like a movie. I'm expecting, uh, uh, I can't, his name slips me to come out and, and be the superhero and, and win, 
win the day, but it's not a movie. And they keep playing it over and over and over again. And he went on to list a bunch of things for which they were not responsible, his age group, that we were responsible for not protecting us. I wasn't responsible for the church with child abuse and Catholic priests and all this other. wasn't responsible for the banks and the whole housing bubble. And his question at the end of this litany was, and I get that, nobody told me that if I spent $100,000 on a college degree, that I wouldn't be able to get a job. You know, nobody said that. My question is, he said, how do we deal with the hard things? What do we need to do to deal with the hard And some younger folks have been prepared for that, but we haven't generally, they haven't generally grown up in a culture which made uh, demands on them to take responsibility early. We, uh, and so... I go back, you know, I had my first real job when I was 14. I was a newspaper boy, and I worked in a soda fountain, all this kind of stuff back in the day. Soda fountain used to be in drugstores, or it would be sort of like Steak and Shake or, you know, In-N-Out Burger. They're, they're coming here to Colorado. in and out here. Yeah, and, um, but my parents' generation, they started working when they were seven, because it was the Great Depression and they had to do something and everybody put money in the pot to survive. And, of course, that's when their parents on the farm started working. Well, we don't have that in the last couple of generations. And so when you get that hard thing hitting, we don't know how. And, again, I'm rambling off. Well, how did your friend respond? My friend said, I understand what you're saying. And he happened to teach leadership at a, in a university in the southeastern part of the United States. And he was talking to someone who was in their early 30s, what we would call your age, you know. And he said, I appreciate your point of view, and I think I understand it. And you've said it so well, but I happen to have a different point. And my point of view is that my experience with other folks your age, even though you've been told that you just had participation trophies and you really haven't been, he said, uh, my experience with the young folks that I'm with is that they really want to step up, step into that. And uh, I see that in my grandchildren. He was talking about his grandchildren and others. And he said, so I, I would encourage you that, it, that it, you will have the capacity to step into that. And, but it's just, it's a, it's a pretty uh, sharp turn for a lot of folks, but it is possible. And, uh, you know, I just thought it was, and he couldn't have said anything, I think, that would have responded to uh, my young friend uh, that was better than that, because he said, you know, I, I get it, and boy, I can see how that works. But I think there's an option to that as well. You know, so. Yeah, just to be told you're capable. Yeah. That's good. Yeah, you got the goods. Yeah, that's good. So, when I look at some of this angst stuff, and it feels like a lot of it's political, and normally I hate talking about it is. <laughs> that kind it of is. stuff. It feels because yeah. it just feels like people yeah. get really mad. Yeah. Um, and I know, I mean, you've you've been a bunch of different things. You've had a bunch of different places, from college president. You worked in D.C. for a while. You've been a pastor. I've had great author. Great difficulty in holding a position. <laughs> <laughs> you've had a lot of positions. Uh, 
But I'm intrigued about when you were in D.C. Yeah. How long were you in D.C. for and what were you doing? Fifteen years. In our role, some of you know what Young Life is. Some of the listeners would know. One of the mantras of that group is come alongside and earn the right to be heard and encourage people toward Jesus. That essentially is what we were doing. It wasn't that organization, but it was essentially that model. Because in a situation where so many people are in public life and under scrutiny, um, there is no privacy, and their private lives tend to take it in the teeth. It is so, uh, what they call Potomac fever, is so engaging because you're with, a, it, it's very target-rich, very dense, and very bright people uh, with huge, oftentimes huge responsibilities, um, way down the ladder. Not, I'm not talking about the president or senators or congressmen, but people in those agencies. You know, you can find somebody five, six steps down the ladder in a place like uh, Homeland Security. And the, so they're six or seven layers down, and they can be responsible for a $10 billion budget and 25,000 people and all of that. So you've got all of this responsibility. And what happens is the higher you go up the ladder, the more competitive it gets. This is true in any arena. Healthcare, education, but politics, it's more obvious. The higher you go, the more competitive it gets. And when it gets competitive, you start playing your cards close to your chest, as we say, close to your vest. And you end up at the top of the heap, lead dog, and you end up with a thousand acquaintances and no friends. And what happens in a place like D.C., uh, leadership isn't hard. People are gifted. It's about making decisions and having vision. Uh, leadership isn't hard for that reason. Leadership's hard because you don't know who to trust. And so our role was to try to come alongside and be a trustworthy friend to a handful of people in places of responsibility. So for 15 years, that's what we did. And for, before, as a pastor and college president, I'd been sort of a Moses in a small pond. And in D.C., I was an Aaron or a Herb, Moses' brother. This, to come along and lift up the hands of leaders. So that's what we did. And across the aisle, didn't make any difference. It's just whomever was responsive across to that. Across the aisle political parties. Yeah, yeah, across the aisle political parties. Because today it feels like, and I'm seeing this with you know some of the young adults that I work with, sure. where it feels like it's hard for people to agree or to disagree and maintain relationship. Oh, it yeah. seems like we're in that culture, like the cancel culture, they say. Yeah. Oh, yes. Or like, you know, you're toxic. You disagree with me in any form. Yes. You're toxic. Get out of my life. Yep. Is what it's sent. It yep. feels like mm -hmm. there's not much dissonance. There's not conversation. It's, it's agree with me or get out. Sure. And I will know that before we ever have a conversation sure. about it most of the time. And so I'm really intrigued by this idea of you saying, okay, like both sides of the aisle, right. you know, the political party that feels almost like the thing that's hardest right. to be diverse in, in the people that I'm working with. Like people like love being ethnically diverse that I have, that I've worked with at least. Sure. They do not like being diverse in like how they align politically. Sure. They, they don't do that at all. It's like, we're unfriend you get out kind of thing. So I'm just curious if you were to talk about that a little bit or the yeah. idea of just disagreeing and maintaining relationship or how you came alongside people who maybe agreed or disagreed with you. How that well, let me, let me give a little context in this sense, biblically. 
and that is that if you're looking for democracy in the Bible, you can't find it. I mean, the only close to it is when they sort of cast lots for who's going to replace Judas and Jesus' disciples. It's all about, in the early part, it's God, and then it's judges, and it's it's a theocracy with God, you know, I mean, he's making the calls, and, and face it, you know, uh, some some years ago, a Canadian said, you folks are worried about parenting and so forth, you know, God didn't do so well with those first two, you know, he didn't, do, <laughs> didn't work out too well, and second generation, you have fratricide, you had one brother killing another, so it starts right off the bat, in part, in well, not in part, because of our penchant for wanting to be our own gods. I mean, you can read it right in the first chapters of Scripture. So, and and we have this mistaken thought that if we get the the right political leadership, it's going to fix everything. Do you think people are putting their hope? Like, almost like maybe how some people would relate to church institutions to keep them safe. Now people are doing that for political parties, or do you think people have always done that? Well, I think they've always done that. And, and you know, it's like back in First Samuel when Israel wanted a king, and the prophet Samuel goes to him and says, you know, God, they want a king. He said, well, tell them what will happen. And so he goes back and says, you know, if you have a king, now the kings are, they'll take your stuff, they'll take your kids, they'll, you know, all of this, they'll kill you. <clears throat> and they said, yeah, but all of our neighbors have kings, so we want a king. So they had a king, and it started out okay, then didn't work too well. And you look at the history of Israel and, and the Jews' kings, and it, it's it's pretty um, spotty, let's put it that way, and, and bloodletting on every hand. And Israel always, even though they were a chosen people, they kept wandering off to the gods. Because in part the neighbors had gods, and 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 but they were idols; they weren't real. I mean, they they weren't life giving gods. And so you had that. And, and and I think what's fascinating to me is you you get into Timothy, and Paul says, "Pray for those in authority, so that we can have peaceful and godly lives." And part of our role in D.C., part of my function, was to walk alongside, to walk with them, to pray for them. Uh, so that they could make better decisions. Because if leaders make quality decisions, those of us downstream get the benefit from that. And so what politics is about is says is saying, this philosophy or this philosophy makes decisions that I would agree with more because I think this is the role of government, large or small. That's a, that's a very simplistic way of saying it. what is what has happened over the last 50 or 60 years is that the uh, institutions have been challenged. When I was in D.C., I asked a fellow who had been there since 1959, what's the most challenging time in D.C. Uh, since you've been here? And he said Watergate, which would be 1974-75, where you have a president actually resign. Okay. He was going to be impeached. He actually resigned. And when that happened, the trust in institutions, because you had had Vietnam, and people said we trusted him, they got him into this thing, you know, which was a, a no win deal. Uh, the, the, the institutions that helped make the country strong 
seemed to be corrupted at a at a particular level, and that hasn't decreased since 1974. That's gotten more intense over time, and the and I can't get into the whole political philosophy thing except to say that to the degree that we get distracted by that one of the, one of the to the degree that we get distracted by saying if we only get the politics correct our lives will be great that i think is an absolutely flawed idea the scripture that i.e. brings us life there are no democratic governments anywhere in that it's all kings and dictators and yet within that people are able to have life and peace at some level doesn't mean that it was great it just means that's what it was so anyway i don't want to overstate the case but i just make the point that that there's nothing in scripture that from my understanding that would um give one hope except when people turn to god and they find peace with him peace in themselves and peace with each other that you have these communities rising up that say do what you want kill us if you want but there's more to life than these three score and ten and part of the challenge is that that when we're on the internet every day absorbing all the all the uh, haymaker ads from both sides when we're when we're i mean look at the range of people you're listening to or watching or the youtube clips or the video pieces or the prophetic thing whatever is on there when you fill your mind with that is there enough space left for looking at the most high god and this isn't pie in the sky by and by. This is saying, what is it that we say that makes life work? If it is in fact creating with the one or connecting with the one who created me and trusting his word uh, and trusting his character and aligning myself with others who trust his character, then when it comes to the bits and pieces, we can work those through. But what happens is, when we're aligned with God, we are rooted, grounded, and we are supple in how we deal with other people. Uh, flexible, if you will. We give space for grace. When we buy into political, economic rhetoric, what we get is hardening of the categories. It's much easier for me to say, well, you know how mad is. She's a girl. She's like a woman. She's a young woman. She's only been around this on 32 times or 31, whatever it is. Well, once I do that, that shuts down the possibilities. Because when I categorize you, that, that lets me deal with you not as an individual made in the image of God. And when I start looking at you, other than that, I'm not looking at you through the eyes of Jesus. So people say, so what do you think about that group? They've said that, and I've had this question on. And over the last 
decade or two decades, I've started saying, well, like, which person are you talking about in that group? Which of those white Irish guys are you talking about? What are the, which of those black friends that I have are you talking about? Or those Hispanics or the, you know, name the category. And I just think that here is the God who allows me to come to him individually. I'm not responsible for Fred Farkle's sins. I'm only responsible for mine, for my actions. But then when I come to him individually, he says, you know, I have some other redeemed people like you, and why don't you walk together on this journey? And that's where I find the peace. I find peace with him and peace with you when I stop operating by category. And uh, it's easy. It's convenient to operate by category, especially if I'm a political writer or if I'm. But when I start doing that with those closest to me, then we have a challenge. And it's hard. I'm not denying that it's hard in a very hot political season when people are saying, if you elect that person, everything's going to hell in a handbasket. If you, if you choose that other person, you know, it's over. Well, one of the things, I'll just say this about the democratic system, is that one of the things is the genius of this country is that you have one group of people called Congress people who are elected for two years and they represent the populace. So if you have 700,000 plus people, you get one congressman. So Wyoming has two senators because that's another representation. Every state gets two, no matter if you're a little tiny state or whether you're New York or California. So you have one congressman and two senators for for Wyoming because they don't have 760,000 people, whatever. But then you've got the presidency, which is four years, and you can have two cracks at that. And then you have, and the congressmen keep going as long as they can be reelected. And then you have the Senate that has six years, which, you again, you can keep going if you can be reelected. And then you have the, and they make laws. That's the people's house. They make laws. And then you have the Supreme Court over here that says, we'll tell you whether those are constitutional or not. And most times it's not a nine to zero thing, you know, it's a, or whatever it is, it's, it's split. But anyway, that's part of the genius democratic system without going more deeply into that. But, but it can swing every four years. It's not like you're king for life, which is what monarchs have. So I got a little off track. No, it was great. Oh gosh, I could listen to you go all day. Oh boy. Okay. So thinking about DC, do you have examples or stories like personal Stories of, sure. of peacemaking, or yeah. where you feel like you got to be a part of that, or how you saw that. Yeah, maybe? it's 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 hard. In in order to be a peacemaker, I think you have to have a reference point. So my experience would be with people of faith, not exclusively, and not necessarily of the same faith or same level of. I mean, what two people have the same level of faith, right? But um, I have a friend. He's actually been at Timberline Church. Some years ago, he came to speak on poverty at, at uh, CSU. Tony Hall, Democratic congressman from Ohio, Dayton, Ohio. And he came to Washington, D.C., and he said he started looking for God. 
and he went to church and he couldn't find him. That's what he said. And But he was invited to a dinner where this guy was speaking and he talked about Jesus and he said he really wasn't interested. Two years later, he was invited to another little dinner, small group. And that time, he felt like that's true. This Jesus person is true and I want to throw my 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 stakes there. And so he came to faith. And he's Democrat. And he said, but the only groups that, that I could find that studied the Bible at that time were all Republicans. And he said, and you know, if you're a Democrat, a Republican is a tremendous hurdle to the kingdom of God. <laughs> <laughs> and and one of the guys in the group who's very conservative didn't want Tony to be in the group. He's very nervous about that. And, uh, but Tony Gaiman was in the group. And over time, those two guys became best friends. And they focused on issues on which they had common ground. So it wasn't necessarily monetary philosophy. It wasn't. But focusing on the poor was a big piece. Focusing on religious freedom around the world was a big piece. And they became best friends and had been best friends now for almost 40 years. And they're both out of Congress now. Tony became sort of an iconic advocate for the poor on the Hill because there are 20,000 paid lobbyists on Capitol Hill, special interest groups. You won't find any paid lobbyists for the poor. He became that voice and is seen today, even even though he's been out of Congress for 15 years, maybe. He, he's still that voice that's heard. But he and his friend Frank, this conservative Republican from Virginia, they are best friends. And, uh, and they've traveled the world together. And I've had the privilege of traveling with them in certain occasions. And, uh, just, it, it was, it was a model. And they were challenged by people from their own parties saying, what are you doing talking, spending time with that guy? But, um, it's, it's, it's very interesting. If you can see an opponent as a person, it makes all the difference. I asked one time, I said, how did this get so rancorous? I, I went there in 1993. What's rancorous? Rancorous means <laughs> that I, I, I hate you. You know, it, it means that I'm always your, I'm always your enemy, right? And, um, somebody said, you know, two things. One is when they put C-SPAN in the chambers of Congress, because you can see the Congress in session all day long whenever they're in session. But when you put the cameras in, all of a sudden you're not talking to your peers. You're talking to your home constituency, your power base. And so you talk in a different way. So oftentimes when debate is going on, there are no other senators hardly in the of the hundred that are in the chamber when you're making your speech. Same thing is true in the house, 435 members. There might be 25 people in there, but you know, not, not the whole crowd. Whereas before they, they would speak to much larger numbers. Secondly was on the house side, they went to electronic voting. So if a bill comes up, whatever the bill is, oftentimes they'll add amendments. So you can have 70, 80, 100 amendments on a bill, and you have to vote on every amendment. So, well, a congressman can't possibly remember all those things. And so they have aides, and you're walking across the street to vote, 
and they'll have six or seven amendments and they'll have yes, no, yes, yes, no. And they'll just do it that way with, they'll just electronically put it in. Whereas before you had to go to the clerk much on the Senate, you still have to and vote. Well, when you had a lot of amendments, the Republicans, the Democrats stood in the back of the chambers and they'd talk. If you talk, there there are two or three things that promote peace. One is somebody has to have initiative to go and start it. And the second thing is you have to be willing to talk. So what happens at the end of a war when we've killed 60 million people? What do we do? Well, you sit down and talk. That's what you do. And along the way, sometimes you try to talk at the front end, but there may be somebody who has designs. I'll just use Hitler as an example. And it doesn't make any difference you talk. He's going to schmooze you and do whatever he wants. But somewhere along the line, you have to get back to talk. So you hear the words of of uh, God saying to Isaiah, Come, let us reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. You have that as a as not just a metaphor, but as a model. So um, I can remember as a boy in my house, my dad was a pastor. They had been missionaries and all of this, but they, my folks started having trouble that I noticed when I was in junior high school. And so we wouldn't have physical abuse, but the words would fly pretty hot and heavy. And I can remember one particular time my sister and I were both in the front room of this little bungalow in Oakland, California, and our folks were sort of going at it over something. I don't know what it was. And my, um, my father started to weep. My sister had said something, I think, and I, and I was in tears. And I'm saying, can't we just, just talk? And my mom put her arms around me and said, my little song, the one who wants to get people to talk. And I think I have always struggled personally in my whole adult life when things got tense in a room and I would try to diffuse it. The way I diffused things, even up into my college presidency, was to make a quip or tell a joke, to take the tension out of the air. It took me years to figure out that all tension isn't bad. Tension can move the ball down the field, but it has to be tension that's channeled. It can't just be shotgun blasts, verbal shotgun blasts, which is what's going on today. And so uh, the peacemaking comes because people are willing to sit down and speak to each other. And oftentimes it takes a third party to facilitate that. And uh, in, in the case of scripture, here is God who comes and says, you folks are an enmity. That's one of those biblical words that means you're ticked with each other. Why don't we turn you toward my son Jesus and let him be the mediator he is the mediator between God and man, but he's also the mediator between us. It doesn't mean that believers don't have differences, but it just means they have a a platform or a or a place, a way of being able to talk. And uh, <laughs> I love that I was in I was in Cartagena, Colombia, years ago doing a missionary retreat, and I was talking at some point about marriage and this 
This guy came up to me and said, I was just doing deputational work. That is going from church to church, raising funds to be a missionary, which is sort of the model that we have where I come from. He said, I was in Alabama, and they were honoring a couple who had been married 75 years. They were in their early 90s. And the pastor, they had this couple come up to the front, and the pastor said to the to the uh, older gentleman, he said, so to what do you owe the longevity of your relationship? That it's 75 years is a long time. He said, well, and, and I can't imitate an Alabama accent, but he <laughs> this in this deep Alabama accent. He said, well, me and Mom, when we was first married, we had this agreement that if we ever got into it, into a fight or anything like that, he said, I, you got too hot. I just go out and sit on the porch until things cool down. And then I'd go back in and we'd talk her on out. And the old man chuckled and said, I guess this marriage lasted this long because of all that great outdoor living. <laughs> <laughs> so I think I think in any relationship, friendship, marriage, institutional relationship, if we had guide if we have some kind of template, some kind of guidelines for how we one talk to each other uh how if we have a conflict how we if sometimes we need to back off a little bit and then come back at it how, how we move the ball down the field you know this in marriage this is we can love each other desperately but we get into it over the color of the living room or something or you, you know how it is and uh finding ways to quickly say I'm sorry, to quickly say I forgive and mean it, to quickly say there has to be a better way of looking at this than the way we're looking at because we're stuck. Anyway, those are the, the, the things that, that work effectively in interpersonal one-on-one are the same things that work effectively in the larger arena but there are forces at work, both uh, uh, human forces, political uh, forces at work, that don't want things to be resolved. Because in the chaos, there's opportunity for taking things the way one wants to or a group wants to. It's just how it is. It's interesting. Paul uses language in Ephesians like, we fight not against against flesh and blood but principalities and powers. And if you believe at all the story of Genesis 1, you know, I'm I'm about to speak a message on curiosity. And uh, curiosity is characterized by questions. And the first question you find in the story of God and man in the scriptures is not asked by God, it's not asked by man, it's asked by the adversaries, by, say, the serpent in the garden. And his question isn't a head-on question. It's a sideways question. Because God has said, you got the whole garden. Take care. Be arborists. Be agro people. And this is all yours except the one tree in the center. Tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat from that. That's all I'm saying. Just don't eat. So you have 99.9% of the garden except for that. Right? And, and the enemy of our souls just says this. To eat. He doesn't say God's wrong. He just says, "Does did God really say that that you shouldn't eat from that tree? Did He really say that?" 
And Eve responds, well, she, he said we couldn't even touch it, which is not what he said. Because we assumed that they needed to cultivate it. And what happens is when we want to do something and, and we, we, I think we add stuff on to give ourselves more barriers and we still violate those barriers. And, and I just think that, that we need to understand that we have to decide where our power comes from, where our life comes from, and where our peace comes from. I found that in the person of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And when you, when you look at his way of teaching the people, he, he talks about these tension points in this thing called Sermon on the Mount in, in uh, Matthew uh, 5 through 7. And there are 14 different ways he talks about stuff that has to do with how you resolve things. If you go to the altar to bring your gift and you have, and you know that someone has something in their heart toward you, it's not even, I think it's not even if you have something toward them, go from there and go and initiate. And you talk and you find resolution. I don't know if this is making any sense or oh, not. Oh, I'm but here this, for it. <laughs> but, um, hmm, and some of that, it's, it's simple. Yes. So much of that is so simple. When you're saying, or some of the things I heard you say, because one of my questions is, you know, when I think of college students or I think of me, when I'm coming to I'm like, what's your advice? (laughs) Yes. How do we do it? You know, that's kind of my question is how do we do it? And in some ways you answered that when it's coming to making peace with other people. Yes. Like being peacemakers to other people, whether that, you know, however that might be, however we're relating. Yes. And some of the things you said, you said be be an initiator. Yes. And you said, find common ground. Yes. And talk to each other. Yeah. I mean, it, yeah. are there other things that you would add or other thoughts when you would say well, how? It, it was, it was interesting. And it, it, and I'll just use this as an, as an example. I have a friend who's a senator in Wyoming, Mike Enzi, who's, I think he's stepping down. He's retiring. But, uh, and his parents owned a shoe store in Gillette, Wyoming. But when he ran for senator, he went to every little, he, he and his wife went to every little town in Wyoming, at every little bird, and just talked to folks. And so, and he's a, he's a very learned person. I asked him, um, do you like to read? He said, I, I had a prof in college that had us read a book every week and write a one page summary of the book. And he said, since I graduated college, I've done that every week. I said, so you're here in the United States and it's huge responsibilities and you still do. He said, yeah, I've got files. Of, he said, usually I have five or six books going at the same time, which I get, you know, I understand. But I just thought that was fascinating. So I asked him, and this is not on the subject. I said, so do you, do you, you like fishing? He said, I love fishing. I said, what's the best stream in, in, in Wyoming to, to fish? He said, well, well, the one where the trout are, <laughs> or the trout are biting, or whatever it is. But he was on the health committee with uh, Teddy Kennedy. Well, he's a conservative Republican from Wyoming. Teddy's a liberal Democrat from Massachusetts. And he said, Teddy Kennedy and I talked. And we said, you know, there's probably 20% of stuff we will never agree. 
agree on. And it's usually not on what's important. It's how to get there. It's usually not the vision, but the process that that's what divides people. That's true in the marriage. That's true in anything. And he said of that, there's another probably 30% that is tough, but it's probably negotiable. But there's 50% of the stuff we actually agree on. So why don't we go there? And then he listed at that moment in time, he told me the number of bills that because they worked together, they could move through the Senate in order to do good things for those of us who are downstream. So unless you're just an evil person, and I think there are some folks who have just given themselves to evil. I've seen things like that. Most people would say that about, you know, Caligula or Hitler, but I mean, there are lesser forms. But there are some people who are captured by evil, and they just, it isn't about anybody else. It's just about that that thing that they want. Uh, unless they're there, if they really want to serve a nation or serve a family or serve a group, they find ways to find common ground because it's in, it's in the cooperation, whether it's nations with allies around the world, it's in the cooperation you find strength. And one of the things about going around the sun this many times, I keep looking at history and I keep looking at now, and they say the people who find ways to work together are the, are the people who get things done. And the more you get to the extremes of anything, right or left, let's just use right or left because people are used to that language, the finer you slice the pie out here on the edges. When you get to the other side, it's like a circle. When you get to the other side, you end up at the same place as dictators. That's what happens. And so the God says, even in the face of a dictator, when you read scriptures, even in the face of wicked kings in Israel, even in the face of Caesars, you, you find Paul writing words that have to do with peace. Could I read some of those real quick? Oh, yes. This is, this is sort of Paul's formula, if you will. And we've referenced this here at Timberline in the last uh, few months. But it's, it's one of my favorite uh, letters that Paul has. Paul is writing to the church in Philippi. Philippi is sort of, uh, it was the first, what we would call European church. You have Turkey, you have the Adriatic, and then you have what is now Macedonia or Greece, and Philippi was in that area. And he's writing to these believers, and he's he's been there. Uh, and you can read this in Acts 16. He he did a church plan with a with a woman who was a businesswoman, Lydia. Uh, they he was in their jail because Paul tended to cause upset because he said Caesar's good, but Jesus is really king. That got him. And in jail. So, but this is what he says to these people who are under persecution. So they're not in a democratic system. They're in a, in a dictatorship where you, you know, Pax Romana, Roman peace was two guys having an argument. We'll spear you both and that'll take care of it, you know. Un unless you're a Roman citizen, that's a whole different thing. But anyway, 
This is what he says in Philippians 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. These are, And he's not talking to wealthy people. He's not talking to Americans here. He's talking to people who are hand-to-mouth. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Now, I don't know if that just means the Lord is like in proximity to me, like by his spirit right here. That's certainly what it means. But it also might mean that he's coming soon. And relatively speaking, in God's economy, 2,000 years is that, right? So 50 years, 5,000 years, no difference. And do not be anxious about anything. Well, that's a mouthful. We're under persecution. We don't have much money, you know. We, but in every situation, and we have earthquakes. That's an area prone to earthquakes. But in every situation, by prayer, by petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding. It's not logical. The peace of God will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now, there's every evidence that Paul may have been writing this from prison when he wrote the people at Philippi. I think he was in prison. And so he's looking at Roman guards. So he knows what it's like to be guarded. guarded, And he says, how about letting the peace of God be your guard? Let's do that. Right? You guard your hearts and your minds the way you think. The rabbit trails you let your brain take. In Christ Jesus. And then he gives us a formula or a, a, a recipe for how we fuel that peace. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right. And I, I have to admit, trying to figure out whatever is true about stuff is very hard today. But how about we think about what's true about God? Or what's true about makes life work for me? Or what's true about what brings me joy? How about let's think about that? Whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, pure, lovely, admirable. If anything is excellent or praiseworthy, anywhere in creation, anywhere in the world, Anywhere inside my heart or in my life or in my relationships, think about such things. He's saying, you want to spend your time thinking? Think about that. Because if you look at the circumstances, you got Roman soldiers on every corner for Pete's sake, you an occupational force, buddy. You know, and, and, and I think, I think because my whole world is captured in the five and a half inches between my ears, that's that's the thing I need to be working on. Because you read the scriptures, you read the New Testament, it it doesn't talk about me controlling circumstances or armies or religious factions or economics. What it says over and over again is self-control. Think about you and how you're only responsible in a very real sense for your life. Now that leads out, if you will, to kids and grandkids and, and relatives and friends and all that. But self-control in a, in a chaotic world, he says, let your gentleness be known. 
So if I'm part of the shouting match, I'm probably not helping peace very much. I'm not saying that there are not moments when civil disobedience is significant, nonviolent civil disobedience, to make a point. But what I am saying is that the bulk of my life is not spent in the halls of Congress or on the streets or other places. The bulk of my life is lived out in the five and a half inches between my ears. And what I do with that, that's on me. You know, I have to be careful to start to sound like preaching. Oh, I'm here for I'm like, <laughs> yes. So, oh, and, my gosh. And I think, that, I think there's this other piece, just real quickly. You know, in um, Paul is writing to the church in Corinth. And the Corinth is down at the tip of Greece. And it's not Athens. Athens is more Boston. Athens is old money. And if you had a car, you're driving Bentleys, right? Um, Corinth is new money. It's the it's a cross between Fort Lauderdale and Spring Break and Hollywood. It is it is purple Mercedes on the streets. It is uh, dancing girls and sailors. It is this wild town. And he writes to the Corinthians, where he's he's helped again with the church planting process. And in Second Corinthians five. Uh, five, excuse me, I said second, I mean, five. I turned the page too far. Hang on just a minute. <laughs> Hang on, folks who are listening. I'm going to find it. This is Second Corinthians 5, uh, 16 where he's talking about how he has come to faith and focused on Jesus and so forth. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, say, well, he's just a rabble rouser, because he killed people who followed Jesus, right? Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if, any was, if anyone is in Christ, two of the most powerful words in all of history, in Christ. If anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone, the new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself, peacemaker, reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. That's one of my favorite phrases in all of scripture. I am counting on that. I just like to go on record around the world, wherever this podcast goes, not counting their sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors as God, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you, we beg on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Gayet God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He says, gives me all your junk, all your sins, all your lusts, all your bad choices. Give those to me, and I'll swap it out for my peace 
for my joy, for my glory, for my gentleness, for my long-suffering. And it's an ongoing process. It's not a one-time. It's a one-time transaction, covenant, but it plays itself out over time. And that, to me, is a tremendous place to be standing in a day when people feel like all hell is breaking loose, and we're saying we need a little heaven to break loose here. Well, we are the purveyors, if you that we have the capacity to be purveyors of heaven in a hellish situation. And it's and it's by how we respond and react and the language we use, maybe even more the tone that we use. And um I just I think, and you, you might expect me to go this place because you've heard me now for a long time. And I can't get away from story. You have one, I have one. And part of it we're responsible for and part of it we're not. It happened to us back down the road, whatever it was. I have a friend who, uh, taught some years ago at Harvard. He was the youngest, when he was in the Navy, he was the youngest commander of a, of a nuclear submarine, uh, in the U.S. history. <laughs> we were having lunch one day. This is un- unconnected to this, except it has to do with potential war. <laughs> he said the very first view I ever got of the Soviet Union was through the periscope of a submarine. And he said it was amazing. I'm this young guy. He said I wasn't the captain of the submarine. But and what had happened is we had ordered uh, we had ordered food at a restaurant in Washington D.C. and he ordered a salad and he said hold the broccoli. I said, you don't like broccoli? He said, no. Me and President George H.W. Bush, we don't like broccoli. And I said, tell me about that. And he said, so I'm, I'm seeing the Soviet Union through a, through the periscope of a U.S. submarine. And he said, all of a sudden I had this thought, we're close. They could catch us. And if they caught us and they started interrogating us and torturing us, I think I could do the verbal interrogation and the electrodes on the various parts of the body and then pulling my fingers out. But if they start force feeding me broccoli, I would tell them every nuclear secret. <laughs> but but he established he he wrote a book when I first got to DC mid nineties called um, "Religion: The Missing Element of Statecraft." And in a time period when the State Department wanted nothing to do with religion. He made the case that most of the world saw the world through religious eyes. The Middle East, Africa, all these places, Latin America, it came through a religious lens. And so that, that book took off through the State Department. And he said he went to work with people who were fighting each other over Kashmir. So Muslims and Hindus. Pakistan and India have fought over Kashmir's disputed territory for years. They've killed each other by the thousands. And he said, we started sitting down with people who hated each other. And he'd say, Ahmed, why don't you tell Mr. Singh over here your story? And Ahmed said, my great-great-grandparents were slaughtered by you. And they started telling that story. And as they told that story, they started to weep. And in that story, the other side heard their own. 
And when they started hearing their stories and where all this came from, they had a decision to make. And the decision was, are we going to break the cycle? Because what happens with wars and rumors of wars and and enmity that families have with each other or people have with each other, somebody has to take the initiative to break the cycle. They say, when you hit me, I won't hit back. Now, it's easier to say than it is to do, and they have ongoing concerns. But there was a moment in time when people started seeing each other as human beings across the table rather than monsters with AK-47. And, um, but I think, you know, I, I, was it Sosthenes or whatever who said, give me a place to stand and I'll move the world. You know, I'll leverage the world. And um, that might not be the right person. But that when I stand in Christ, I stand in a place of peace where Paul went on to say, there is no bar- barbarian, no Jew, no male, no female, no highborn or lowborn in Christ. And so even though the other party may not be there, if I am there, and if I'm thinking on things that are pure and noble and right and all of those things, that is the that is the place that I get to stand and offer peace and be peace to somebody else. Yeah, that's good. It's a good word. Well, I wish they were mine. <laughs> <laughs> I have taken them as oh, my own. Gosh, but I could listen to you read them all the time. You have a really good voice. You should do voiceovers. You should read. I'll just listen to you read all the time. Um, you're the best. Thanks for making time for us. Thanks much. My joy. This is the, the people that you lead, this age group of people, you've heard me say this before. They are my, if I have a favorite group or a group with whom I feel most energized and comfortable, it is those, whatever it is, whatever the group, 18 to 35, whatever that group is, where you're making these huge decisions and choices and finding one's footing. You know, when I was 18 and the end of my 20s, I'm finding my footing in life and in relationships. And and I didn't have half of the stuff that our listeners have to deal with. So Ruth and I pray every day for our grandchildren who are in that age group and for folks like the folks listening on this program. And we're so grateful for you and Justin and Powell. What a grand boy he is, <laughs> Powell. And uh, just thanks for letting me be honest. Oh.